Amen. All right, this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 7, starting in verse 6, and go to chapter 8, verse 19. We're, we're in Noah part 2. Uh, we covered the first part last week. We have another part next week, and, and kind of a fourth part after that, um, in that we're going to look at Noah's descendants. But we're kind of taking in three sections. We're kind of taking before the flood, uh, during the flood is going to be today, and the next week will be after the flood. Um, and I think that sometimes we have a problem with, with the, talking about this story and a, a lot of the Bible stories in that we have kind of a cartoon image of, of what it might have been like, right? We, we're stuck with those flannel graph images or Sunday school illustrations and coloring pages, right? And color, color pages with these things. But, and and it, it's good, except it, it can kind of take away from the, the reality of it, right? The reality of that these were real people and real circumstances, um, and, and so just to, to kind of, in an attempt to kind of bring that in, I want to tell you the story of a different flood. Um, this is the, the 1938 Yellow River Flood. Any, any fans? No? Never heard of it? Okay, so this happened actually in 1938 before, um, before World War II, and it, it's, it's viewed in the, in the, in the Asian um, continent kind of as a, the prelude to World War II, or even the cause of World War II. Some historians even point to it as the cause of World War II. Because uh, it began in 1937, this, the Second Sino-Japanese War started in 1937 over a dispute uh, over a bridge between the Japanese and the Chinese. And in, uh, by June 1938, the Japanese army controlled most of northern China. And they were marching south and they were heading toward the capital. And so the Chinese army was desperate to stop the advance of the, of the Japanese army. And so they broke the dikes on purpose, they purposely broke the dikes of the Yellow River to create a flood that would stop their invasion. And in doing so, they killed somewhere between, somewhere between 500 and 900,000 people drowned. That's more, that's more than were killed by both, both atomic bombs that, that were dropped in Japan. Were killed by this flood. 500, mostly civilians, died in this flood, and millions became refugees. Massive destruction. viewed as one of the most brutal acts of war that has ever been ever occurred, and one of the environmental most damaging that have ever occurred in history. And so that kind of gives you a taste of the, the visceral reality, na real nature of this flood that we're going to look at today, that real people really died. That there was really uh, destruction, and that was its purpose. Right? Is God using it as a form of judgment on his people? And so, just to keep that in mind as we, as we move forward, and, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 7. First thing we're going to look at is verses 6 through 16. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God has commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 
On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So a couple things I want to draw out of this. First, I think the story of Noah shows us the impact that your faith can have on other people, particularly your family. Because Noah, it's Noah's faith that God points to. His family goes along with him. Certainly they could have rebelled. They could have said, no, Dad, you're, you're crazy to build this ark, and I don't care what God told you. They could have rebelled against it. They had faith of their own that caused them to, to follow him. But it's really Noah's faith that is leading in this area. Um, and, and although salvation is a personal decision, right? you have to have believed, you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, you can certainly have an impact on your family and on other people um, in the way that they believe. We see this in the book of Acts, in the story of the Philippian jailer. If you remember, uh, Paul and Silas are, are in jail in, in Philippi, and uh, they're singing hymns, and they're praising God, and, and then all of a sudden a great earthquake comes, and the doors are open, but they just stay where they're at, and they convince the other, the other people that are in there to just stay where they're at. And the jailer comes, and he thinks this is tragedy, and, and he, he thinks he's going to have to die, because he, he knows that if he loses his prisoners, he gets their punishment. That was the law back then that if the, if the jailer lost his prisoners, he would get the punishment that they would have gotten. So he's ready, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. He's ready to kill himself. And they stop him, and then he is so grateful, this is where we'll pick it up, that in, in Acts 16, verses 30 through 34, it says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke, to the word of the, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wombs, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The jailer's household believes partly because he believes. Right? They're following the example of their leader, of their head of their household. And although you don't force your family to believe, you can have a major impact on them, both young and old, but in both directions, right? Both young people sometimes can lead their parents as they, as they follow, as they become, become uh, followers of Jesus. Their parents can see the change in them and, and be led in that way. But parents certainly naturally lead their children. The ch your children want to be like you. They're looking to you for what, it, what, is, it, what is important in life. And so you can point them to Jesus. And there are other people that, you, that, that are watching you and that are, are relying on your faith that bolsters their faith. Almost any believer in here would tell you that there have been times in their lives when their faith has been weak and they've had to rely on the faith of someone else. They've had to lean on the faith of someone else in order to believe. We lean on each other's faith oftentimes. And so you can have an impact on somebody. And the question you have to ask is, who are you leading to faith? Who is it in your life that is watching you, that is following your example? The second thing I want you to see in this section 
is that it says the Lord shut them in, right? The Lord shuts them in and they become a floating remnant. It doesn't use that, that word here necessarily, but, but it's what it is. And it's a recurring theme throughout scripture uh, of this remnant of people, of faithful people that are, that are hanging on. And uh, though they are small, they are faithful and God is going to use them to rebuild. So we see this in Later in Genesis, we'll see it in, in chapter 45, verses 7 and 8, when it says God, this is Joseph talking to his brothers, because uh, he had been sent to Egypt, and it said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Right? He sees this idea of, of creating a remnant by sending Joseph to Egypt. His brothers betraying him created this remnant situation we see it in isaiah often in the prophets are talked about this idea of a remnant because often the prophets are sent when israel has gone way off track they're a rebellious culture they're not following god and yet the prophet and the few people with him are a remnant that god is going to rebuild from in isaiah chapter 10 verses 20 and 21 it says in that day the remnant of israel and the survivors of the house of jacob will no more lean on him who struck them but will lean on the lord the holy one of israel in truth, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Again, speaking of a remnant that's going to return, that God's going to rebuild around. In Amos chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, it says, Seek good and not evil that you may live, so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Again, he's pointing to this idea of there's a small group of you who can do what God would have you do. And in Romans even, Paul talks about it. He says, I ask then that God, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture of, says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I am alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So again, this idea of a remnant, that there is a faithful remnant that is sticking around. And the thing we want to see is that God is always always willing to rebuild around a faithful remnant. And we need to, to embrace our identity as a faithful remnant. As we see the, the, the faithless culture, a culture that is more and more rejecting God, as we see that we live among a people that have more and more rejected God's ways, God's path, our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's important that we embrace this idea of we are a faithful remnant because otherwise you're just a small fringe group right otherwise you're just on the edges you're just a you know you might as well give up but if you're a faithful remnant that's a much more strong position to be in and it's a it's a godly thing to be and even us, us here as discovery hills church we have we have been bigger than this in the past or we have had more of us here in a sense, we are the faithful remnant that we can rebuild around, that God can rebuild around, God can use. 
So it's important that we embrace that identity because it changes the way you live and it changes even generationally how you see yourself, right? The, the prophets often never saw change in their lifetime. They had to focus on, can I pass this on to somebody? Can I find somebody that, can get, that I can give this to, even one person that can just take my place? Or can I teach my children that they can follow on with me? So this idea of a remnant is very important for us to think about. All right, next we're going to look at the waters prevailed. Now the waters are going to actually come. Everyone's sealed up in the ark. Now the waters are going to come. Genesis chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. It's it's important that we recognize how brutal this punishment was and how just it was. Both of those things are true. But oftentimes we just, you know, again, you see the the children's drawings of like a a boat floating on the earth and the giraffes sticking out and the elephants, you know, like you go, it's really pretty cartoon, not recognizing the fact that those waters represent death. Those waters represent destruction. It was devastating. And even for Noah and his family, although they were, I'm sure they were happy that they were saved from that destruction, that still had to, it still had to be heavy and, and quite a feeling to think we are the only life left on the earth. That's a tough thing to feel. And, it, and this points to a problem that a lot of people have with the Old Testament, right? As this idea that God has the right to judge, punish, and destroy, right? That this is God's right as our creator. And then specifically, they point to these two questions that I want to address that I think you ru- you'll run into as you talk to people. Uh, anybody that, that talks to people that don't believe in God can kind of come up against these two questions. First is, how can a loving God send people to hell? Right, and that question has even driven away many of our pastors and Christian leaders. We've seen people go away from that question and go, well, then I have to reject hell, and we certainly can't do that. It's biblical. So how can a loving God send, some, send people to hell? And secondly, how can a loving God allow evil to persist? How can a loving God send people to hell? And how can a loving God allow evil to persist? And do you see that these questions are diametrically opposed? And we'll take them each individually, but they're actually questions that are against each other. So the first question, how can a loving God allow, how can a loving God allow evil to persist? We'll take that one first. Well, the first, first answer we'd have to that is that in, in light of eternity, he doesn't. Right? And if we take eternity as our standard, then our lifetime is so short, and any evil that exists within that life 
all of human history, is very small. Right? Any, any amount of evil is very small in light of eternity. Now, does that help people a lot? No. That's not very, like, that's true, but it's not very satisfying. Right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really hit us where we live, right? Because we live in that, in that small piece of time. But the second part is that we live, that we recognize that we live in a broken world. That's really the primary answer to this, is that we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is not as God intended it. That's why we start in Genesis, so that we can see God's creation intent, the way that he designed the world to be, and the fact that it's broken because mankind rebelled against God. Because God was the source of all good things, and if everything went according to his plan, it would all be good, and there would be no evil, nothing wrong. But mankind rebelled against God, said, I know better than God knows, and therefore evil entered the world and has consequences. And so the world is not as God intended. God did not intend for people to lose their homes in fires. God does not intend for people to go into into nightclubs and shoot people. Those are not part of God's creation intent. But the world is also broken daily, broken by us, right? While it is also broken initially at the fall of man, it's broken daily as people continue to rebel against God, even Christians. As, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So we recognize that, that when we say, why does God allow evil to persist? Why does God allow evil to exist in the world? That if God were to eliminate evil, he would have to eliminate us. Right? Because even if you said, well, okay, then God should at least just eliminate the murder. What if there's just no murder? God didn't allow anyone to murder anybody else. Well, now, the worst thing you can think of is no longer murder. Now, the worst thing that you can think of is assault, maybe. Okay, well, then let's say we got, no, you can't touch anybody. N- nobody can hit anybody else. If you try to, God just holds your hand. You can't, you can't quite get there. Okay, so that's not. Now, mean things that you say are the worst thing you can think of right? If you keep going, every little thing, now just being rude is the worst thing. And eventually you have to just get rid, because if you think about what you want out of the world, you want perfection, you want all goodness, and if you were to eliminate all evil, you would have to eliminate human beings or do something about changing them, which is what God has chosen to do. So we live in this time where God is allowing people the chance to come to him, allowing them to respond to his plan to restore his creation intent. And as a result, we live with evil. In spite of that, so in spite of the fact that we live in a broken world, that if we, if we had wanted to remove the evil, we would have to remove all the human beings, God also limits and frustrates evil to a point that we don't even know. right? And if you think about that, We don't know what tragedies God prevents. We don't know what things God holds back, right? But it has to be a lot. And and I think even if you just look at the mass shootings that we see in the world, I'm always surprised that the tolls aren't higher. I'm always surprised that the numbers aren't higher. Especially there are many times when you go, well, there was nothing that really stopped this person 
but somehow they were just stopped or somehow they couldn't find where most of the people were. That's God at work, right? We can see that and we can know that that is true. And then the last answer to this is that God is loving and powerful enough to bring good out of the worst evil. We recognize that God, in spite of the fact that he allows evil to exist, can still bring good out of the worst evil. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, he says, we know that, God, that, the, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That God works out good even in the worst situations. He brings good out of evil. So then we have the second question of how can a loving God send people to hell? Right? How could a loving God send this flood to destroy all these people? Well, in a sense, God doesn't. Right? In a sense, God doesn't in that creating this goodness and then people choosing to live outside of it, he doesn't send them to hell so much as is, is an analogy that I made up. I don't know how good it is. You can let me know. I think that God doesn't create hell in, this, in the same way that when, when you build a house, or he creates hell in the sense that when you build a house, you create outside. Okay? When you build a house, now all of a sudden outside exists. But were you trying to make outside? No. You were making the house. You were making inside. Right? And so in the same way that God creates the new heavens and the new earth where you can dwell in submission to him in loving goodness and in the recreated bodies that he has for us, if we turn our lives over to him, he then creates those that say, no, I don't accept that. But God made a way for us. He's made a way for us to not have that. But if you don't choose to submit to him, then you have to go outside of his presence. You can't come into the new heavens and the new earth because it needs to be a perfect place for the sake of everybody that's there. And so then we have the new heavens and the new earth and we will have the lake of fire. Those are realities. But God has made a way. In Romans 8, verses 1 through 2, he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation in Christ. That if you haven't come to Christ, if you haven't accepted that, if you haven't found your hope in Him, haven't found forgiveness, haven't found new life in Him, the door is open and you are welcome and there is no entry fee. It is 100% free and you're welcome to come and you should. Come and accept the forgiveness, accept the grace, accept what God has for you. Because he doesn't want that for you. He wants you to come willingly. He wants you to bend the knee willingly, say, yes, you are my Savior, you are my Lord, you are my King. But if you do not bend the knee willingly, you will bend it regardless. All right, the waters subside. This is the last, last section we're going to cover today. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. 
The fountains of the deep and the window of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him on the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his, his sons and his, wives, and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This, this chapter starts with this phrase, but God remembered Noah. And that is really the crux of the whole story. In fact, I have um, in, in the study guides, which uh, if you're not familiar, we have, we have study guides in the back that, uh, that have a lot of notes and things on this chapter. I have discussion questions if you have a small group or anything like that. There's also a, a sheet on the back called uh, Family Devotional that I encourage you to do with your kids around the dinner table one night a week. Um, just read the scripture and, and have a couple discussion questions. So you're all going through the same part of the Bible together as a family. But in that study, in that study guide, I have this, this part of uh, excerpt from a commentary where it shows how this story is really a, a mirror image of itself around this phrase, but God remembered Noah. There's kind of a rollout, and then this is the, the, the apex of it, and then it rolls back, and it all corresponds really in a neat way. That's hard to show on the screen, but you can see it on the paper. I encourage you to check it out. But one question people sometimes have is like, well, what does this mean? God remembered Noah. God forgot? He got distracted? Like, was he just busy with the angels? And then like, oh yeah, I forgot. No, I'm, I'm, I forgot. I'm destroying the earth, and Noah is up there. Like... <laughs> No, that's not what it is. And first, that, that word remembered, it's a good translation, but it's not a perfect translation of the Hebrew word that is used there because that Hebrew word is often used for thinking about things in the future, like remember something in the future. Well, you can't remember something in the future, right? That's not how it works. So remember really is more like dwell on or focus your attention on, right? That's where he's talking. So he turns his attention back toward Noah, toward his people that he had to his, to his remnant, right? He, he's focused on the, the flood, the destruction. Now he's turning his, his attention back to his floating remnant. <coughs> but even though 
God has remembered, no, there's still a long, long wait. Right? There's still a long wait. It's two months between when he, when he first looks out and to when he actually gets out of the ark. Right? That's got to be frustrating. I mean, cooped up in there for so long. He's in the ark for, the whole, this whole ordeal lasts over a year. It lasts a whole year that he's in the ark. And, and oftentimes for, our, for us, waiting on God's timing is some of the most difficult thing to do, right? This idea of even, even the fact that he sends out the dove and it comes back, sends out the dove, all that, that kind of stuff back and forth. It's waiting on God and waiting for his timing. And that's one of the hardest things for us to do is to wait on God, to be patient with God's timing. But it is worth it. And Psalm 40 talks about this, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This whole story is about Noah putting his trust in the Lord, waiting on God's timing, allowing God to work, and seeing that God then resets with him. Right, The first thing he says is be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's God's first command in the garden. This is a, a reset that he's getting to. We'll look at some of the reasons why that's the case next week. I'm going to close with saying, how should we then live? Here are some things you might take away from this passage that we looked at. First, consider the impact your faith has on others. Right, this idea of, oh, these are the wrong ones. I don't know why they're, this must be from last week. Just don't put them up. The, if you don't, you don't, can't write these down. They're in the study guide. Okay, so pick one up. First, consider the, the impact your faith has on others, right? Noah's faith had an impact on his family. What impact does your faith have on other people? And how can you be more intentional about that? Right? It doesn't have to just be coincidental. It can be intentional impact. Secondly, embrace your identity as a faithful remnant in a rebellious culture. Embrace your identity as a faithful remnant. Third, recognize God's right to judge. Recognize that God is the only one who has the right to judge and that he will. And that you can turn to Jesus to avoid that judgment. And then lastly, learn to wait on God's plan. Wait on God's timing. Wait for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We can come and hear from your word. Hear this story that we've heard before, but hopefully hear it with fresh ears. Find new things in it, God, as your, your word is new all the time for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, that, that saves us from judgment, from your righteous judgment as we are rebellious people. We have rebelled against you, but we want to follow you. We want to be known by you. We want to be your faithful remnant in this rebellious culture. We pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us that we might do that. In your name we pray, amen. Y'all stand.